So if you would uh, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 7. This morning, uh, we will uh, pick up where we left off. We'll pick up in in verse 54 and go through uh, 8.3. We'll pray, then we will read the text, then we'll make observations and applications as we uh, divide the text together. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do desire this morning to ascribe honor and glory to your great name. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ as sons and daughters. We are those who live in a world of opposition to Christ. We trust in him who will vindicate us when you receive us into your kingdom. We pray for those who oppose us, that through our faithful witness they might be one to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the church that gathers at Wapato Valley this morning. I pray that your gospel would go forth unashamedly proclaimed and believed on by your people. Pray that your will would be done, your kingdom would come. I ask, Lord, for you to give us grace this morning to receive your word with glad hearts. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you are able... Would you stand as we read the inspired, infallible Word of God, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, and committed them to prison. This is God's Word. You may be seated. There's a promise of God that in this world there will be great opposition to the message of the gospel. The Christian who proclaims the message of Jesus, who proclaims an exclusivity in salvation in no other name than Jesus, who tells the truth about the human condition before a holy God, will be opposed, falsely accused, maligned, and hated for that truth. The Christian, though persecuted in this life, will finally and fully be vindicated before God and man in Christ Jesus. The faithful Christian denounces sin for the sake of winning souls, even of their most ardent enemies, 
trusting that Jesus Christ stands at the throne of God, vindicating them before the Father and receiving them into the kingdom of God. So as we dive into this text this morning, I want to go by way of reminder and look at Stephen's denunciation of sin. Uh, so succinctly put in 751 through 53, I'm just going to read that again. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen declares that those who accuse him of blasphemy are those who have a history of impenitent, stubborn rebellion to the promises of God. They resist the Holy Spirit because they have stopped their ears and hardened their hearts to him. They have resisted the messengers of God in their historic persecution of them. The promised Christ has come and him you murdered. You venerate the law of God you venerated the deliverer of God's law in Moses, and even him and that law you have disobeyed. This is Stephen's statement to them. Their response? Now they were now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. When they heard this, when they heard you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears, you who always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of these prophets did you not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. When they hear these things, they were cut by it. But they were far from repentance and faith. Instead, they become enraged. Their reaction was much the same as the reaction in Acts chapter 5. In verse 33, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And so here they are. They, they are grinding their teeth. They are gnashing their teeth, as it were, at Stephen. And this is a defiant rage. Luke records two responses of the persons that find themselves see excluded from the kingdom. Essentially, what Stephen is saying is that by your history, by your resistance of the Holy Spirit, you might find yourself excluded from the kingdom of God. You who have held the law, venerated Moses, you who rejected the law, you who your forefathers have killed all the prophets, you who killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one, you who have betrayed the Lord Jesus, the one when he came and killed him, you could find yourself excluded from the kingdom of God. In chapter 13 of the gospel, according to Luke, he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. See, one response to knowing that you might be excluded or you are excluded from the kingdom of God is to weep. 
knowing that the guilt belongs to you alone. If you and I or any one of us are excluded from the kingdom of God, weeping is the response. It was my sin and unrepentant heart that kept me out. God is blameless blameless in this. But the other end of this is to gnash one's teeth defiantly. How dare you not let me in? It is to grit and gnash your teeth. It is, it is to blame God. If I'm not in, it's your fault. If I'm not included in the kingdom of God, it's all your fault. It is to be angry and gnash your teeth in, a, in an unrepentant, rebellious heart. R.C. Sproul once commented on this passage at a conference I attended, and I am going to stand in agreement with, with Dr. Sproul here on this, and he said this, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't quite remember 10 years ago exact words, but I'm going to get close, I think. It stuck with me. He said, I may be the most deluded man on the planet if I am confident that I am part of the kingdom and I find myself on the outside looking in. And if I am, you can count me among the weeping because I know that the fault lies within me alone because God is good. I know that the fault would lie within me alone. And here the Sanhedrin there are enraged to the point that their desire is to charge Stephen with blasphemy and to put him to death. And here's the odd thing about this passage is that they have no authority whatsoever to execute him. When charging Jesus with a crime of blasphemy, what did they do? They appealed to Rome. John 18.31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They are determined in their hearts with murderous rage to execute Stephen. The proclamation from Stephen that they, just like their forefathers were, are and consistently been unrepentant, constantly resistant to the Holy Spirit, is met with a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, murderous intent. Notice what he says in 51 and 53. You're a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, how do they respond to that? In rage, with a stiff neck and an unrepentant, hard heart. They are confirming the very thing that Stephen just uh, proclaimed about them in desiring to murder Stephen for what he has said to them. Verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, remember, was described in chapter 6, verse 5, when he was chosen to serve the practical needs of the church, he was described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And here it says, he full of the Holy Spirit. This is a, an additional uh, receiving of a special feeling of the Holy Spirit, which enabled him to see this heavenly vision. And in this heavenly vision, he sees the glory of God. And here's what we should notice about this. We should notice that he saw Jesus standing and not sitting. Jesus, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, is the ruler. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But Jesus standing by the throne is receiving His good servant in. He is saying, welcome. You are vindicated in me. This is Jesus standing in the gap for Stephen. You are vindicated in me. I am welcoming you in to the kingdom. So he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing and standing there announcing, Stephen, you are vindicated. You are welcomed into the presence of the glory of God. And notice this, that the heavens, they were opened up. Just like the heavens were opened up at Jesus' baptism. In Mark 1, 9-11, it reads, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And Stephen here sees that vision. He sees the heavens opened up. He sees Christ in His in His glory, standing there, vindicating Him, welcoming Him in, as if He's saying to Him, You are My beloved Son, and in You My Father is well pleased. Welcome home. Stephen describes the vision of Jesus as the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's description of Jesus by the moniker Son of Man You know, that was a name that was almost exclusively used in the New Testament by Jesus to describe Himself. And Stephen sees Jesus as the Son of Man. He sees Him as the one who is saying, I am vindicated and welcomed is the one who suffered and was vindicated by God. The one who has welcomed me in is the one who also suffered. And he suffered in my place and he's welcoming me in. I am vindicated in him and I am one of his children. I am welcoming him in. In Luke 9.22 describes Jesus' self-proclamation as the one who would suffer and be vindicated by God. In 9.22 of Luke he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And get this, on the third day raised. That is God's vindication. He must suffer these things, but on the third day, God will vindicate him by raising him from the dead and declaring him the Son of God. Jesus' example became the pattern, didn't it, for the Christian martyrs. For all Christians, Jesus is the one who vindicates those. Those who are unashamed of Jesus. Those who acknowledge their allegiance to Jesus before men. This is a truth that the church could glam onto. Every one of us could glam onto and hang on to this truth that we are vindicated in Christ Jesus when we are unashamed of Him. When we are unashamed in our acknowledgments of Him, when we are unashamed in our allegiance to Him, we are vindicated in Him. Before the Father. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, read this. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Suffering in this life for the Christian is sure to come. It's sure to come. 
But the thing that I want us to hang on to is that suffering for Christ is not in vain. It is never in vain. Those who are in Christ and acknowledge Him before men will be finally vindicated before God and will be welcomed home as God's faithful servants. Confident in the assurance of our vindication, we rejoice in sufferings. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read a chunk of it from verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Stephen proclaims it is vindication according to the Spirit-filled heavenly revelation of God before the council. As we look at what Luke says is that, that although they are enraged, they are determined to kill him. He, full of the Holy Spirit, sees the heavenly vision, sees that he is vindicated in Jesus, sees that he is welcomed home, that God has revealed this to him in a special way. Verse 57 but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. When you were a kid, did you ever do this? When you didn't want to hear what mom had to say, like mom had some instruction for you, or you didn't want to listen to your brother or your sister if you had siblings growing up, you put your hands over your ears and you just start. I'm not hearing it, right? I'm not wanting to listen it. This, this is, is what really is essentially going on, on here. These grown men who are responsible for the leadership in, in the temple. I'm not listening. I'm not going to hear you. They are stopping their ears and they are trying to shout over the top of that which uh, Peter has just said, I've seen the glory of God. I've seen Jesus standing at the right hand. I am vindicated. And they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that truth. So although that they, the council, are barred from execution by law, the council is determined to return to an Old Testament prescription for stoning a blasphemer. They see Stephen as a blasphemer. They cry out with loud voices to drown out the words of Stephen. They also uh, uh, do this so that the words of Stephen that he is speaking will not be discerned by, the, by others. They stop their ears. They're indicating that I will hear no more of this blasphemy. All semblance of order appears to disappear here, doesn't it? They, they in rage, come after him. 
They rush together in unity to grab hold of him. And then in this chaos, they grab Stephen and they drag him out of the city and they stone him. There's no formal charges made. No rebuttal witnesses called. They move straight to execution. One thing they did seem to observe in the Old Testament law was a prescription for the victim of the stoning. Leviticus 24, 14 records, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And in Deuteronomy 17.7, it says, The hand of the witnesses shall be first, first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So they see Stephen as evil. They've got to purge him from their midst. So they take him outside the camp, and they stone him. Normally what would happen in this stoning is that the victim would actually be stripped of their clothes. But here... We see the clothes of the witnesses, they're discarded. The clothes of the witnesses are laid at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, this is the beginning of what we will see of this man, Saul, who will carry on rage against the church. Saul is mentioned here as he was likely of the Cilician synagogue that we talked about a few weeks ago, that uh, he's probably one of the leaders, the spokesman who came to the council regarding Stephen. And as you remember in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedman, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So he's one of those who brought the dispute. One of the spokespersons likely was this man named Saul. We will see here that although Saul did not participate in the stoning, he certainly approved of it. No charges are met. This seems to be an illegal execution in every measure. But here it is. They have had success in stoning Stephen. Verse 59, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Two significant things I want us to notice in Stephen's dying prayer. 59 and 60 are his dying prayer. First, to whom does Stephen say he commits his spirit? And secondly, his appeal to God is to pardon his executioners. 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Upon Jesus' death, he committed to himself to God the Father. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Stephen here commits himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. This displays that the early church placed Jesus as the co-creator, the co-equal of God the Father, which is precisely the reason that the leadership accused Stephen of blasphemy, that he had elevated Jesus Christ as God himself, that God in the flesh, that he and God were one. 
And this was blasphemous to them. And in rage, they executed him for it. And secondly, let's notice that Stephen prays for his executioner's pardon. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He does this in much the same fashion as Jesus in his dying prayer says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, who is armed with the vision of the glory of God, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who knows his vindication in Christ Jesus, is at once to do two things. At the same time, he's to, he's confident to denounce sin, to call it what it is. And he's also filled with concern for those who persecute him that they would receive in themselves favor from God, that they in themselves would be granted repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their own vindication. These two things are going on at the same time. He doesn't shrink back from telling the truth about sin, but that truth that he tells about sin is concerned for their eternal position, for their soul. I tell you this because I am concerned for your soul. You are a stiff-necked, uncircumcised-in-heart people. I tell you this not because I hate you. I tell this because I love you. And may God grant these folks repentance and faith. Stephen's dying words are to be like Christ. I'm not going to shrink back from telling you the truth about sin because I love you and want you to Receive the goodness of God and His grace and to receive repentance and faith. He would hope that they would receive that same favor that He has received, that they would one day stand before holy God with Jesus Christ standing at the right hand saying, this one is vindicated in me just as your brother Stephen was earlier. Perhaps God would grant them repentance. Don't hold this sin against them. Allow them repentance. Allow them faith. Christians who are armed with this confidence, the confidence that they have been and that they will be vindicated in Christ, armed with the knowledge that they will be received into the heavenly presence and glory of God, respond like He does. Respond to persecution by imitating Jesus. Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when you re- when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Paul admonishes the Romans in chapter 12, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Christians who have been forgiven much have in mind their own forgiveness and the glorious promise and the vindication of Christ when they are persecuted. They have in mind their own forgiveness when others sin and trespass against them. I have in mind I've been forgiven much. You are not beyond the forgiveness of God even though you've sinned against me. I think sometimes when we are sinned against, we think that is the worst sin that any person could ever commit, right? Because it was against us. Like if somebody goes and sins against my brother, that's one thing, right? But if that brother does that sin to me, 
then I'm done with him, right? He sinned against me. But here I think one who, who says, you know what? I have been forgiven much in Christ. I will stand before him imperfect. I will stand before him imperfect in myself. And he will say to the father, this one is vindicated. This one is mine. He stands here, welcomed into heaven in my perfection. And we can hope that even for those who come against us, even those who sin against us, to bless them and not to curse them. Like Stephen, Jesus and Jesus, we must at once proclaim the gospel in its fullness. We must renounce sin and at the same time, Announce that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the thing to remember. Here's where grace comes in from you. All of those things are true, right? And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And I think that's a light way of saying, and such were all of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, in there, there is, I know that I have sinned much and I know that I have been forgiven much and so I have much forgiveness that I owe. Much forgiveness I must give to my brother. I was beyond salvation. There was nothing in me that God would save. There was nothing in me that would make me worthy of Him. There was nothing in me. And yet He did. And the brother or sister who sins against me, there's nothing in them worthy. I need to tell them the truth of that. But they're not beyond the forgiveness of God. They're not beyond His grace. They're not beyond His mercy. And I think when we think about the gospel, sometimes we don't think about telling the truth about sin, but we need to couple it. I think we need to tell both at the same time the truth about sin and that there is forgiveness in Christ. Again, as R.C. Sproul said, we don't see the good news is good until we know just how bad the bad news is. So we must at once warn, but in the Spirit desire the good of those who oppose us. We must warn those who oppose us, desiring their good, desiring their salvation. The passage that it makes me think of is Jude in 18-24. through 24. And they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And listen to the last two verses. They're very poignant. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh.
It is to hate sin and love the mercy of God. It is to tell the truth about sin, but tell the truth about the forgiveness that can be had in Jesus. Tell the truth about yourself. Tell the truth about yourself. Here I once was. Here today I struggle with this. I was once this. But God in His mercy caused me to repent and to believe and to put my trust in Jesus and His atoning death. And I know without a doubt that I will one day be vindicated, that there will be one day I cannot outsin God's grace. I cannot out, I cannot outsin His love. Neither can my brother or sister who comes against me. You cannot sin his love. He loves you. If you will repent and believe, he will bring you in. And you will stand before the Father. And Jesus, standing there, will, will, will proclaim to him, this is your good and faithful servant. This one is yours. This is a good and faithful servant, one who trusted in me. Let's look at verse 60 through 8, 3. And when he had said this, when he had said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. At the success of Stephen's death, the execution was successful in the minds of the Sanhedrin, right? In the, in the minds of the council, this was a successful endeavor. This execution of Stephen sets the scene for a more widespread persecution of the church. His death leads to the scattering of Christians. It leads them beyond the borders of Jerusalem. And consequently, what happens as they spread out from Jerusalem is that the gospel continues to spread with them. As this difficulty comes, as this suffering and persecution come, God scatters them about. And with it, the good news goes with them. That wherever the Christian goes, there it is. There is the good news. It scatters them about. Suffering in the hand of God has purpose, you see. Persecution, suffering in the hand of God has purpose. The purpose of the persecution of Stephen and the church of Jerusalem is the method through which God accomplished what He said and what He promised in the spread of the Christian witness beyond the borders of Jerusalem. If you remember from Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. God accomplished the promise of that message by giving them the Holy Spirit, by scattering them about, by moving them away from that which made them comfortable, maybe. And you know, I pray for us as a church this. Now, don't throw things at me when I say this, okay? Please. But this is the truth. I, I, I pray this for us. And I prayed for this uh, over the last few days. 
I pray that the God of all comfort would make all of us uncomfortable. I pray that the God who comforts us would make us uncomfortable. Not because I desire persecution, not because I desire death, but because I desire that church would be moved, that it would be, we would be moved out of complacency, that we would be emboldened to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the hard places. That God would move us from ease to difficulty. And that we would embrace that difficulty knowing that God is moving us. I pray that the God of all comfort would make us uncomfortable. Would make us uncomfortable to just sit and have every day be a mundane day. That He would move us. I pray that we would place our trust in the vindicating death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be those who denounce sin. And I pray that we would be those who at the same time uh, proclaim forgiveness of sin and that we would do so to hard-hearted people, to unpenitent people, to people with stiff necks who will not turn, people who resist the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would just denounce sin and proclaim that forgiveness even for those hard-hearted, stiff-necked, unrepentant people that we would be confident in this truth that even amongst those, God is calling them to repentance and faith and that He will grant those He has called just that. Confident that He will grant repentance and faith to those whom He has called. If we were confident in those things, that is a prayer that I have for us as a church this morning. Well, as... We take a moment just to silently reflect upon God's Word. I pray that you would ask the Lord yourself what promise He would like you to take from this morning's passage. And ask the Lord honestly in your heart, is there something in here that has revealed the sin that I need to be repentant of? I pray that as we sit in silence that we would ask God honestly to make us a little uncomfortable.